If you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and open it to First Second Corinthians, um, chapter twelve. Second Corinthians, chapter twelve. And as you are turning your Bibles to Second Corinthians, chapter twelve, I want to give you essentially backdrop of where we've been and what we're concluding today. We've been talking about embracing limits or the gift of limits, although I know that many of us have wrestled last month seeing limits as a gift. And today we finish this journey by talking about this paradox in the Christian life, which is that we find our strength in weakness. We are at our strongest when we are at our weakest. Um, so confession, and, and, and the confession is I don't like being weak. I don't like being physically weak. I don't like being spiritually weak. I'm one of those people when I'm in group settings, I don't like feeling like I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm one of those people when I'm in group settings, I don't want to be the person that feels like I'm holding everybody else back. I'm also one of those people that don't like the feeling of confusion. I don't like the feeling of... um, and you get the point. I, I don't like limits. I don't like weaknesses. I don't like, uh, basically what I'm saying is I don't like facing who I am and what I am really uh, like. Um, the problem is that I wake up every day and I live and breathe a culture that loves the idea of the superhero because we want to be one. I live and breathe and I'm around other people who love having their successes known and their failures hidden. I live and breathe a culture where we want to elect candidates who pride themselves on the fact that they're the strongest candidate and are afraid of admitting their vulnerabilities. I live and breathe a church culture, by the way, where every month it seems like there are pastors who either have moral failure or are dropping out because of the enormous pressure to succeed according to the world standards. And into this culture comes this revolutionary message from God and that says you could only be strong to the extent that you are willing to admit that you're weak. You are only going to be strong to the extent that you are willing to admit your weaknesses, embrace your limits. Does anybody else struggle with this? Say yes if you do. Yeah, okay, yeah. So we've been essentially looking at what it means to embrace limits. And by the way, by the way, I'm actually surprised that nobody has emailed me and said, but doesn't the Bible say that God is able to do all things and God is able to give us a measure of more than blah, 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 to which I was waiting for somebody to say that because I wanted to be able to say to them, yeah, God actually gives us ability to go beyond the limits when he calls us to do something that is his. Where for many of us, it's our plans, our agenda, my thing. (laughs) And I need God, you to kind of give me extra. Nowhere in the Bible does God say, I will provide more than you need, even though I have nothing to do with it. Nowhere. So don't confuse Your agenda, I need God to help me go beyond my limits. And God's agenda, and even though you are unable, I will be able to do this in and through you. Okay? Big difference. Big difference. So, 2 Corinthians is a letter that Paul writes, where we've been, to the church in Corinth. And essentially the backdrop is that there are these super apostles, super apostles in quotes, who've showed up in the church of Corinth and basically saying we're better than Paul. We're more spiritual than Paul. We have more revelations than Paul. So Paul needs to defend his apostleship, if you will, his authority. And the only way that he could do that in some ways is to list his accomplishments, his achievements, his experiences. And as you know, if you were here last week, we briefly looked at it, he hates doing it for this reason. He hates doing it because he knows. He knows that in the kingdom, it's not human achievements that showcases the grace of God. It's human weakness. 
It's not human, whoa, look at that, that showcases the strength of God. It's when human weakness, human inability, human limits come to that place where only God has to show up. Otherwise, it's not possible. So Paul says, I don't want to list my accomplishments because I'm afraid that it would obscure the grace of God. And you'll focus your eyes on me. So it is in this context that we're going to look at a passage you're very familiar with, even if you're not completely well-versed in church, so on and so forth. So let's look at this text. And we're going to finish this sermon series today as we look at what it means to find our strength and our weakness. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. I must go on boasting. Although there's nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. He's talking about himself, by the way. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. Only God knows. I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know. But God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things a man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. If I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I'm not going to. So no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Verse 7, listen to this. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations. Paul says, I was, I was in a very, very dangerous position of being intoxicated with pride, with arrogance, being full of myself. Paul knows better than anyone else, as we're going to look at, that God opposes the proud, but what? Gives grace to the humble. Here's why Paul, by the way, we could see pride in other people. We don't see pride in ourselves too well. I just thought I'd mention that. Um, Paul knows better than anybody else that the barrier to God is the sin of pride. Let me tell you about pride. Pride is not, I think I'm better than you. That's an offshoot of pride. Pride in its essence, its primal essence is this. I want to be my own God. Pride in its essence is, I want to be masters of my own universe, which, by the way, leads to the delusion of self-reliance and self-sufficiency. Which, by the way, is a joke because we weren't created to be self-reliant or self-sufficient. Can I get an amen? We were, you see, fundamentally designed to be dependent on God and to live in community with others. That's not a flawed design. That is the way God intended this deal. Which means that the great danger to you and me is not our weaknesses. The great danger to us is our delusion of strength. Let me say it again. The great delusion to most of us is not what we think it is. It's our weaknesses. I know you think it is. But the great danger is thinking that I can do life on my own. It's thinking that I am capable on my own, you see. And I don't need God or anyone else. Because when you are deluded by that strength, you will not desperately seek the help that you need from the one who can give you strength of every kind. It's our delusion of strength that is derailing us, not our weaknesses. Please get that. Please get that. It's our delusion of strength that has us living without limits. It's our delusion of strength that makes us think that we're God. It's our delusion of strength, by the way. By the way, I did not know this. I'm like, here's a telltale sign on how deluded I am. I don't even like asking people for help. You think I'm going to ask God for help? Hello, anybody? So yes, there is a correlation to the extent to which you need and embrace community and the extent to which you are deluded by your strength. 
Verse 7, there was, there was given me, Paul says, a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Paul literally says that this is a gift. He says, God gave me. It was given me to keep me from becoming proud, to keep me from becoming arrogant, full of myself, to keep me humble. Do you know what the word humble literally means in its origin in Latin? Hummus, of the earth. In other words, humility is recognizing I am dust and to dust I will return. We all have an expiration date. We're not going to live forever. And Paul says, to keep me from becoming conceited, there was given me. I said this last week. I'm going to say it again. I know it's hard to listen to, but please listen. God thinks humility is more important than comfort. God thinks humility is more important, furthermore, than freedom from pain. There is not, there is not a contradiction between God and his love sending us thorns to keep us humble, grounded, sometimes painful, and his love. There's no contradiction. God in love, matter of fact, will oftentimes send us thorns to keep us grounded, remind us that we're of the earth, remind us that we need him at all times for all things. So if your life is utterly comfortable and devoid of pain, do not mistake that for I must be doing well or God must really love me. Because if that's what you think, when God sends thorns and weaknesses, what do we do? Well, God can't love me. What were thorns? Thorns were literally stakes. That armies put up to keep the enemy from progressing and advancing forward. And the translation of torment, <laughs> I know you don't like torment, literally in King James Version, it's buffet. We literally meant to discourage, to deflate, to take the courage out of. Here's why God sends thorns. You ready? God says thorns because you and I are prone to take life by the horns and do. And God goes, slow down. Slow down. Anybody need to hear that? Can I get an amen? Slow down, slow down, slow down. God sends thorns to remind us that we are not God. I don't know about you, but I am reminded on Sunday that I am not God, but by Monday noon, I think I'm God. (laughs) Anybody else? See, I can go on. And you sit there and go, do I need thorns? Are you kidding me? Do you know what we would innately be like have it not been for God's love to say, slow down, embrace limits. You and I will be off and running with the massive God complex, not needing God, not needing other people, doing our own thing in our own way, in our own time. Maybe the most loving thing God does is to say, in love, I am going to slow you down. Stop you from just running off and doing your own. What were Paul's thorns? We don't know. How wise is that? Because if he said it's this, we would have been like, I don't struggle with that. But he doesn't. You know why? So you and I could identify. You know what thorns are? I love Eugene Peterson's translation. Verse 10. This is what he says about this verse. Because of the extravagance of these revelations. And so I wouldn't get a big head. I was given the gift of a handicap to keep me in constant touch with my limitations. Thorn is a gift of limitations. It's a gift of limitations. Thorns cut across the strongest among us. The smartest among us, the most selfishing among us. Thorns cut across age, culture, class. Not one single one of us in this room can escape the experience of our limited. So what are they? After four weeks of me screaming at the top of my lungs, are you coming to grips rigorous honesty with what your limits are? What your limitations are? Are you? 
I know some of you didn't need this sermon series because you're very well acquainted. But like 90% of us, what keeps you reminding you that you're weak? What keeps you in touch with how fragile, how helpless you are apart from Christ? What limitations shatter the image that you can be all things and do all things without repercussions? What limits do you rage against in saying, I don't like that? Verse 9, 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Anybody else familiar with this prayer? Oh, good Lord. God, can you please take this away? Can you please remove it? And then I do this, you know. I try and kind of fool God. I go, because I can do so much more for you then. <laughs> I'm the only one. I'd be so much spiritually strong. I, I, I kind of do this gymnastic. Like if I didn't, God sit there and go on. Good try. <laughs> Verse 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Can everybody, everybody just, I remember I said this week, last week. This literally in Greek doesn't say my grace is sufficient for you. Literally in Greek, it says what? Sufficient for you is the grace of me. This is revolutionary. Because God is literally saying in that, I don't want it. I don't need it. God, please help the God says, sufficient for you is what? It's me. Grace isn't something on the side that Jesus, God says, sufficient for you is me, my presence, my power, my ability. God doesn't dispense strength and grace. Like I said, like a pharmacist dispenses pills. You need some strength? You need some grace? Here, take it. That's how many of us think. Oh, that's grace. I'm going to take grace for now. God goes, no, 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 no. Grace is me. Um, why is that encouraging? Because the grace that he offers doesn't stay for when you need it. And then he goes, he says, I am with you always to the what? To the very end of the age. It's not, let me dispense it to the point that you need it. And then I'm, he is with us, ever present source of all. He is the answer. He is the power. Is that encouraging? And you'll see as he expounds why this is. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, that is why, for Christ's sake, that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses. I delight in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, it is then that I am strong. Can I ask you a question, church? Do you boast and do you delight in your weaknesses? Do you this morning, do you boast and do you delight and thank God for that weakness and limit in my life? Of course we don't. Of course we don't. And no, we're not talking about sin. The Bible says you need to fight sin. We're not talking about foolishness. We're talking about, as Paul says, weaknesses, insults, adversity, circumstances, illness. How in the world can Paul say, I delight, I boast. That's what we're going to answer today. And then I'm going to wrap it up. First, Paul sees God's purpose in his weakness. Paul sees God's purpose. Do you see what God's purpose is? And I hope this resonates with you because I can't spend a lot of time on this point. The purpose is when Paul says, it is for Christ's sake. It is for Christ's sake. God's purpose in our weakness is simply this. It's to glorify Jesus. God's purpose in our weakness is to glorify Jesus. To glorify. Glorify is this big theological word. But it simply means this. It means that God wants to make you and me a showcase for his love. A showcase for his power. A showcase for his wisdom. And a showcase for his grace. 
This is what it means to glorify. He wants to make you and me a showcase for his power, for his grace, for his love. But here's the thing. He doesn't showcase his grace by helping us escape from our weaknesses. He does it in and through it. He doesn't do it by removing our weaknesses, but he glorifies himself by giving us strength to endure. It's in that place of weakness, limits, not escape from. It's in that place of, are you kidding me? You want me to sit with this God that God says, my wisdom, my love, my power is ultimately showcased. Is this good news to anybody? Here's the reason why. Because it has always been God's way. To use flawed people to bring hope to a flawed world. Somebody clap for that. It has always been God's way to use flawed people to showcase his glory in a flawed world. Abraham that was too old. Elijah actually was suicidal. Joseph, abused by his brothers. Job, lost everything. Moses, not very articulate, had a stuttering problem. Gideon, prone to fear. Samson, a womanizer. Rahab, A prostitute. Samaritan woman. Not once, not twice, not three times, but what? Four times divorced. Jeremiah. Too young, they said. Noah had a bit of a drinking problem. Jacob, a cheater and a liar. David, a murderer and an adulterer. Jonah ran from God. Naomi, a widow. Peter, denied Christ three times. Martha, constantly worried about everything. Zacchaeus, way too short and loved money a little bit too much. The disciples fell asleep on Jesus at the last most pressing need. And Paul, a Pharisee who persecuted Christians before becoming one. Is it good news that God says, I showcase my power by your feet? See, see, you know who this isn't good news to? Because there's a handful of us here this morning. I'm going to talk to them a little bit. Who are like, I ain't any of that. I've been straight and narrow. I'm moral. I don't struggle with anything. I've been a good kid, good grades. I have a good job. I actually give to the church. I, I know who you are. <laughs> I'm talking to you in a couple seconds too. Because here's the second point. God's power flows most strongly in our weakness. God's power flows most strongly in our weakness. Paul says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Let me unpack this. You ready? Everybody look up here. Let me unpack this. It goes something like this. You see, the more aware you are of God's grace, the more humble you will be. Yes? The more aware, I mean for real, for real, like aware. Not like, yeah, no grace, you know, undeserved favor. (laughs) Start pulling out like the Greek word for it. I don't care about that. I'm saying you understand. The more you understand grace, the humbler you will be. The more you understand grace, the more prayerful you will be. The more you understand grace, the more thankful you will be. The more understand grace, the more content and joyful you will be. The more understand grace, the more courageous you will be. In other words, the more you understand the more grace, the more powerful you will be. But you only understand grace when you are weak. You only understand grace when you are weak. Is it any wonder that the guy that wrote this letter, Paul, calls himself at one point, I am the worst of what? All sinners. 
He said, how is it the guy who calls himself the worst sinners was perhaps used by God more than anybody else to be the champion of the gospel of grace? Would you agree with that? More than anybody else. Here's how it works. You ready? Because Paul's screw-up was the biggest, his repentance will be the deepest. And because his repentance will be the deepest, his grasp of the gospel will be the greatest. Let me say that again. Because his screw-up was the biggest, his repentance will be the... How many of us are going, I am the worst of all sinners? You may say that to be like fake spiritual, but you don't mean it. Because his screw-up was the biggest, his repentance will be the deepest. I am the worst of all sinners. But because his repentance is the deepest, his grasp of the gospel will be the greatest. Meaning, you love me? Oh my God, literally, you love me, the worst of all sinners? Amazing love. How can it be that you, my God, would die for someone like me? See, if you let your failure and weakness drive you deeper and deeper into the gospel, you know what you understand? You understand how costly his death was. You understand that how radical his grace is, which makes you both incredibly humble and incredibly bold at the same time. Why do you think Paul was used so effectively? Have you ever met a Christian who was incredibly humble and incredibly bold at the same time because they said, I am the worst of all sinners, and yet you love me? I tell you, it's rare. Do you see how Paul could say, it is when I am weak? In God's economy, nothing goes to waste, not even our sins. Anybody here struggling with guilt and shame for what you've done? Can I just share some good news? Some of you that have failed the most spectacularly might be the most powerfully used by God among us. I don't just say that to be the preacher. I am serious. Some of us who have failed most spectacularly might be the most powerfully used for God's kingdom. Do you know why? Because you understand deeply. You understand innately what? Grace. He loves me. He died for me. He did what for me? That's why for those of us in here who have failed the most spectacular and thought God could never possibly use me, you could minister out of that weakness, minister out of that failure, which means you'll be incredibly humble and sensitive to people who are broken and struggling, which means that people will be drawn to you like flies, like, wow. God also doesn't waste our past either. What do I mean? It is for some of us who have come from the most messed up, broken families that could come from among us the best husbands, the best wives, the best parents, and the best teachers and counselors. Now I could go on and on and on about how God could take the most broken among us and redeeming that brokenness, healing that brokenness, God could use us to minister others. It's when we feel the most ill-equipped to share the gospel that God might speak most powerfully through us. And it's when we feel like, I got it down. Apologetics. I know exactly. I could talk to anybody. That God goes, I can't use you then. Can I get an amen? And I could go on and on and on. Is this good news to anybody? Here's the other thing that Paul got. Third point. I got to move on. Oh, let me just share this. Verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. Hopefully in this context you understand why this says, Instead, God chose the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they're wise. And he chose things that are weak and powerless to shame those who are powerful. This is good news. Amen. Here's a third reason why Paul was able to say what he did. In failure and weakness, third, come growth and power. It's in failure and weakness come growth and power. Paul says, my power is made perfect. By the way, the perfect is the same word that Jesus used on the cross when he says, tetelestai, it is finished, it's done, it's completed. Powerful word. And Paul's literally saying, if it wasn't for that limit, that sense of weakness that came into my life, I wouldn't have any power. 
If it wasn't for that sense of weakness and limit that came into my life, I wouldn't have the courage I have. I wouldn't have the humility I have. I wouldn't have the power I have. I wouldn't have that. If it wasn't for that weakness, there would be no power in my life. You say, how does that work? This is how it works. It's when you come to the utter end of yourself. Anybody been there? It's when you and I come to the end of ourselves. We hit rock bottom, as they say. And we literally come to the end of, I can't do this anymore. I can't live on my own anymore. I can't do this anymore. That we finally turn to God and realize that God is there and that, listen to this, God is enough. It's literally when we come to the end of ourselves that for many of us, we finally turn to God and we recognize and realize that God is there and that God is enough. And we could say as a psalmist did, whom whom have I in heaven but you? Nothing on earth compares to you. Can I ask you a question? Would you be strong if you truly lived your life from the perspective of God, you're enough for me? God, you're enough for me. I'll tell you what some of us would begin to do. Some of us, if God was enough for us, would begin to make wise decisions about who we date. How many of us, let's be honest, have made foolish decisions about who we date because we're insecure, because we're afraid? Where do you get the strength to go, I will make wise decisions because God is enough for me? It's only when you first become weak. Are you with me? Two more examples. It's only when you become weak, utterly desperate from failing spectacularly morally, that you come to realize that you are saved because of grace and not because you're good. I'm going to say it again. It is only through massive failure that we come to that place of realizing I am not saved because of my righteousness, but I'm saved because of the righteousness of Christ. And when I recognize that I'm saved because of the righteousness of Christ, Romans 8, there is nothing that can separate from the love of God. Do you know how strong we would be if we realized there is nothing that could separate me from the love of God? But that doesn't come unless you first what? Fail and become weak. One more. Many of us are uh, living our lives, basing our entire identity, worth, and significance on our children, career, money, grades, sex, what the world says. You say, no, I'm not. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. And here's what happens. We put our entire hope and identity significance in that. And then something happens in that area. And what happens? Here's what happens. I get you walking into my office and saying, my life feels meaningless. And I go, why? And you say, because I built my entire life's meaning on that. And it's gone. Of course, we're going to feel meaningless. But it is in that place that finally we turn to Christ and we live what we sing, which is on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground. But you will not learn that he is our only secure foundation unless until you build your life on something else and it gets obliterated. It is in weakness and failure that we learn to be strong. So here's the next point. Success might wreck you. I'm sorry. Actually, I'm not. I don't know why I did that. I don't know why I said I'm sorry. Actually, I do know why I said that. Success might wreck you. The last thing, literally, that some of us will need or might need is success. By the way, before I expound on this, is anybody like resonating with this already? Success for some of us might be the last thing, the very last thing you need. Do you know why? First of all, just pay attention to the news and see the spectacular falls of people who've accomplished amazing things. 
And you and I go, well, shoot, I wouldn't do that. Why does that happen? Why do people keep doing that? Are they stupid or something? No, they're just like you. They're just like me. What do I mean? Here's what happens. We get a little success, whether it be, you know, in our career or money or it could be spiritual experience. We experience a little success. And here's what our heart does. Our heart takes that and we find our self-justification in it. What do I mean? Our heart takes that little bit of success and we go, huh, I must be somebody. Huh. <laughs> God must really like me. Huh. I'm blessed. Church people. I'm blessed. Huh. We start, but we don't just stop there though. You know what we do? We then look around and go, how come you haven't succeeded? Hey. What's wrong with you? I, and we become self-righteous. And do you think you're being strong when you do that? Do you know how weak you are? Reason with me. Come reason. Let us reason together. Do you know what happens to you if you build your entire life, your identity, your worth, your significance on children, on marriage, on finances, on your job, on your career? What happens if that area of your life blows up to which you go, that will never happen? To which I say, how do you know? How can you be sure? You see how fragile that is? Do you see how fragile? See, this is the reason why I said a little earlier, for some of us, this is our story. We found our identity and our worth in the fact that we were good Christians, that we were moral. And then we graduated college, you know, and went beyond the college spiritual bubble, started working. People were like, hey, come over here, do some of this. Hey, let's go over there, do some of that. And you used to be the one going, oh, no, 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 no. I'm a good Christian. I don't do that. Then all of a sudden, what do you do? You start compromising all your moral convictions. And that's the reason why you walked away from the church, because you couldn't deal with the guilt and shame. But here's the thing. The problem wasn't that you weren't so good. We know that already. I am not good. The problem is that you are basing your entire identity and salvation on your goodness. Hi, Moody Bible students. Hi, North Park seminarians. How many of us give lip service to, I'm saved by grace? But deep down inside, it's because I'm a good person. This is why in love, God will allow you to mess up and sin. Not because he wants you to, but because that is the only way you will finally come to realize, I am saved, not because I'm good, but he's good. I am saved, not because I am righteous, but because of the righteousness of Christ. Do you know how strong you would be if you were that? It is for freedom, Bible says that Christ said it's free. Do you know what freedom is? Freedom is when you are so secure in God's love for you in Christ. Freedom is you are so secure in God's love for you in Christ that you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to lose, and you have nothing to prove. Everybody say this with me. Ready? I've got nothing to hide. Come on, say it with me. I've got nothing to hide. I have nothing to lose. And I have nothing to prove. Can you say that? Lastly, here's the fourth thing that Paul learned. He learned to process a message in the thorns through the gospel. Everybody, can you please... Please, please, please. This is maybe the most important because some of us are right now going through a season where the limits and the weaknesses and the difficulties is very acute. Paul says that attached to the thorns were messengers of Satan. Do you see that? Do you ever realize what that means? That means that Paul's saying with every thorn, there's a message attached to it. There's a message attached to it. And it's good that we live in the age of email, so I can use this illustration, you'll connect. In an email, there's an attachment, a document attached to it. And when Satan sends an email, there's an attachment, a document attached to it. In other words, with every thorn, there is not just a thorn, the attachment. And what discourages us is not the thorn itself, but the message we listen to. 
What discourages or strengthens us is not the thorn itself because every single one of us in here this morning go, that's a major thorn. What separates those who are strengthened and discouraged message. But you also notice Paul says, we don't just get a message from Satan. We also get a message from who? From God. He says, but God said to me, when I said take it away, sufficient for you is the grace of me. Listen very carefully, please. If you're sitting here this morning, and you are either revolted, revolted, revulsed, revolt. If you are by this message, because, because sometimes a guttural sound is way more articulate than, you know, your pastor flubbing his words. This morning, this morning, this morning, every single one of us right now, every single one of us right now, we are either listening to Satan's message or we're listening to God's message. And you are either discouraged or strengthened depending on which message you listen to. Let me give an example. There are some of us this morning who were in a relationship, long-term relationship, and out of nowhere, the guy or the girl said, we're done. They give you any excuses. They're bummed. They're bu- they said, we're done. And it left you totally reeling. And Satan says, email, Peter. There's a document. I open it. Here's Satan's message. He knows your family of origin. He knows your weaknesses. He goes, who would love you? Why would anybody love you? That just proves you're unlovable. Anybody familiar with that voice? Or one of my favorites, not my favorites, his favorites that I am familiar with. He goes, he goes, he goes, he goes, hmm. See, that just proves that God doesn't know what he's doing. Who knows better than you your life? Are you kidding? You know your life better than anybody else. You think God knows your life? Come on, take charge. It's your life. And then there's this third one. I'm not done yet. The third one, his message is, and this might be the most lethal of them all, You're beyond redemption. Nothing could change you. Nothing could fix you. And we just listen to that and go, yeah, it's true. It's true. That's why you're discouraged and completely devastated. But in the same thorn is a message from God. What does God say? He says, sufficient for you, say it with me, is the grace of me. He could be saying in that thorn, my validation, my verdict is the only thing that ultimately matters, child. And as long as you continue to look to men, to women, as long as you continue to look to relationship, as long as you continue to look at all these things that the world says you need, as long as you continue to seek that desperately, you're never going to be strong or free. You're constantly going to be enslaved and in bondage to the approval, to the voices, and to the affirmation of people. Sufficient for you is the grace of me. Every thorn has a message from Satan and a message from God. And which voice we listen to will ultimately determine whose purposes are determined in our lives. Whose voice are you listening to? Whose voice am I listening to? As I end this series, CC, come on up. I want to speak to two people and then I'm done. You're not a Christian here. I need to speak to you. And by the way, if you're not a Christian, thank you for hanging in there. The very difficult, tough message. If you're not a Christian, I need you to hear this. And that is this, that the power of God's grace could only be experienced when your need is acknowledged. Let me say it again. Actually, Christians need to hear this too. The power of God's grace can only be experienced when your need is acknowledged. That is, the power of God's grace that is freely available to anyone is available when we acknowledge and admit our neediness and our incapability. 
Ask any Christian here this morning, and they will tell you that was the catalyst for their journey when they came to Jesus and said, I can't. I need you. The Bible says it is those who repent and believe that could enter the kingdom of God. Please listen very carefully. Here's what repentance is. Repentance is coming to God, acknowledging and admitting that you have run your own life. It's acknowledging and admitting that you've been masters of your own universe, living with the delusion of self-reliance and self-sufficiency. Repentance is coming to God and saying, God, with your help, I no longer want to live my life as if I'm in charge, as long as, as if I am self-sufficient. But I want to come to you and live my life as if you're in charge, as if you're Lord. You could either live your entire life believing that you're capable, you're capable of determining your life, or or that God is. That's the first part, though. What does it mean to believe? Believe, which is the gospel that we in a new community love, and I remind us every Sunday is this. It is that we are adopted on the basis of Jesus' record, not our own. Can I get an amen? The Bible says that to believe is to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I believe that you lived the life I should have lived, the perfect life, and you died the death I should have died on the cross for me. So when I believe in you, I actually believe that God looks at sinners, repentant sinners, as if we have done everything Jesus has done and suffered everything Jesus has suffered. So the Bible says in John 1.12, to all those who believed him, he gave them the right to become the children of God. Repentance and belief is what enables you to access His grace. Christians, there's a saying in our church we love. Here it is. Christian life isn't just difficult. It's what? Say it with me. It's what? It's impossible. We talk about this all the time. Christian life isn't just difficult. It's impossible. It's so impossible that the only person who managed to pull it off, we named this thing after him. And the only way that we could live a Christian life is through the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us, living through us, this life for us. Amen? And here's the thing. Did you ever notice and ever wonder? The reason why we can't embrace God-given limits, it's not because we don't have enough willpower. It's not because we're not trying hard enough. Maybe it's because we're not relying on the Holy Spirit to help us embrace our limits. I'm going to say that again. You and I have no shot. That was a great sermon series, Peter, and I'm so convicted. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to do my best and pull myself up by the bosom. You're going to fail by 7 o'clock tomorrow morning. The only way that we could embrace our God-given limits and find joy and contentment in them is when we realize that even embracing our limits can be done through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. Amen? After all, Jesus showed us this. Jesus showed us this. In Luke chapter 4, as he is about to be tempted in the wilderness, here's what the Bible literally says. Oh, Jesus full of the Holy Spirit. Everybody say that with me. Jesus full of the Holy Spirit. Left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He was full of what? The Holy Spirit to do what? He is about to enter the wilderness where, as we saw two weeks ago, the entirety of the temptation is the wilderness. Is Satan to get Jesus to blow past his limits, cross his God-given limits and God's timetable. Turn that stone into bread. Jump off from the temple and show people your God. Don't wait for the cross and suffering for the kingdoms of the world. Bow down to me right now and I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. How does Jesus overcome the temptation to say, blow past your limits? Limits are for losers. Who needs those limits? Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. Father, I will wait for your timetable not mine. Father, I will wait and endure the crucifixion and death. Father, I will not cross your God-given limits to live into my full humanity. I will wait for you. How? Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. 
And Paul says in Romans 8, I am with this. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. In the same way, the Spirit helps us. Say it with me. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. One more time. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. Before we take communion, if you all bow your heads with me, And before I invite you to come to the table, I want you to think of that limit, that weakness, perhaps even hardship, adversity that's in your life right now. I want you to think of that weakness, hardship, adversity that has you crying out to God, God, take it away. God, take it away. God, take it away. I want you to think about that limit that you, you rebel and you push again. Think of that limit. You say, I don't want this in my life, God. I want to be able to think of what that is. And I want you to right now, as you, as you tangibly think about that, I want you to say in your heart, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Think of your inability to embrace your limits with time, your physical body, with addictions. Think of the limits, your unwillingness to embrace season of life. Think of that. And I want you to say in your heart before you come up for communion, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. And my dear brothers and sisters, for those of you for whom you're in a painful season where you're acutely aware of your weakness, of your vulnerability. What can you and how can you say in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness? Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. The Spirit helps us. In the same way, the Spirit helps us. I can't <gasps> breathe in, but you can. <sighs> breathe out. I can't <gasps> breathe in, but you can. <sighs> breathe out. Confess. I can't embrace these God-given limits and find joy and contentment. I will fight it till I die. <gasps> but you can help me to embrace it with joy and 